Judy Belk, thank you so much for joining Centering Conversations. This is Shonda Smith-Baker from Conversations with Shonda. This is an exclusive conversation brought to you by Voice Vision Value, Black Women Leading in Philanthropy. How are you? I am doing great. I love that, the intro. I mean, it's so, so reassuring and reaffirming. I'm delighted to be in conversation with you, Shonda. Thank you so much. I remember thinking through and listening actually with Toya Rando, who has envisioned and really brought to life the way in which she has quietly supported women across this country, specifically Black women in philanthropy, to this place of voice, vision, value, understanding the importance of elevating, amplifying, and sharing the stories of the expertise, Mm. of the innovation, of the leadership that we collectively bring across this nation and across the globe. So shout out to Toya. One of the things that I am um, interested in is talking about race and place. Mm -hmm. And as I was listening to one of your interviews, there was a couple of things that um, felt really familiar to me that I'll share, right? One is on my paternal side, we landed in Minnesota as part of the Black migration. Mm -hmm. So why we didn't stop in Chicago, I don't know. (laughs) We got to Minnesota. The other is on my maternal side, I'm fourth or fifth generation here in the Twin Cities. And so there's something about those sides of me, one that has deep roots and others that were coming from a place where they had to move to find place and space um, because of race and racial dynamics and opportunity. And um, it felt like we we shared uh, elements of those stories like we do with so many um, people of color, specifically Black people in this country. Yeah, I agree. And it's so interesting, you know, that we're talking this week um, because place, my place, where, where I grew up, I, you know, was fourth generation Uh, family in Alexandria, Virginia, right outside of Washington, D.C., part of, you know, what's being called the DMV, the District, Maryland, Virginia. But when I when I when I it was I thought it was the last outpost of the Confederacy. And uh, my father's family migrated from North Carolina, but it's my um, on my mother's side, deep, deep roots in Alexandria, home of George Washington. Uh, It's very foo-foo now, but I remember it in my experiences that although I lived 10 miles from the White House, my life was determined by the crazies in Richmond, Virginia. And I was always, I always felt like I was peeking over the Potomac River. And so place has always, I've just been fascinated with it, you know, geographic boundaries. And then full circle, um, I, as you know, I just stepped down as heading up the California Wellness Foundation, a large public health foundation. And our mantra with the social determinants of health, which is just a fancy way of saying place and race and economic levels determine whether or not you're healthy or well. I mean, to the point that, you know, someone living in Beverly Hills might have a life expectancy 
of nine years over someone living in East LA. So it's really real. And so the place and um, the race, it's part of what I took from growing up in Virginia. And to be perfectly honest, when I left Virginia to go to away to college, I didn't know if I would ever return. So it's ironic that my two California born and raised adult children are living in the DMV. My son is the father of my new granddaughter, Ada. And she's now, yeah, sixth generation Alexandria. But it it place is something that I find just fascinating. And also realizing how impactful it is about wellness and health and life or death. Yeah. So tell me, when you were growing up, because I know a little bit about Virginia, was was it still segregated? What was the experience? Oh, my gosh. You know, this country has, you know, a history of, you know, episodes of racial reckoning. I was part of that racial reckoning, uh, this tug of war. When I started school, I was, um, schools in Alexandria were segregated. My sister Vicky and I um, were bused across town to a separate but very unequal school, even though there was a brand new school that had just opened up a block from our house, we could walk to it. And I remember being on the bus as a six-year-old going past the school and I was more fascinated by the playground there, just looked so much better than the playground at um, the school we were going to. And I remember asking my mother, uh, because every Sunday night, my mother would braid my hair and I kept saying, why can't I go to that school? And she said, you can't, you just can't. And then, of course, I was very persistent and kept saying, well, why can't I? And she said, because, you know, they don't let colored children go to that school and Shonda, I kept asking, kept saying, well, why not? And she said, because they're stupid, that's why. And I've always felt that that is what, uh, just a great definition of, of racism. And I don't know if it was because I kept asking or my mother just got tired of us waiting in the rain and the snow for a bus to take us to a school where she knew we were not getting a good education. But uh, around this time, and it's, it's a great story about philanthropy and about community organizing, there were a group of African-American leaders um, that received philanthropic support from the Jewish community to deciding that uh, Alexandria could be a test case for the Brown decision. And so my mother raised her hand and that's not, well, of course she would. Well, during that time, there were a lot of forces at play that would suggest that it was not in her best interest to participate. And she did. And the city of Alexandria, they couldn't use race. So in the court, in the legal documents, and I just recently reviewed them again, it said we were mentally deficient, that our IQs was too low to um, to be admitted to the school. It would be against our best interests. And our attorneys, who were amazing, decided to ask the judge if they could test 
uh, some of the white students. And guess what? They found out if we were mentally deficient, they were too. (laughs) So um, it made history. And the reason why um, this is so timely is just yesterday I was on the the phone with historians from the city of Alexandria saying in their own way, apologizing, but also saying that they would like to honor my family's involvement in integrating the schools by putting a plaque on the site of the school that we eventually attended. Um, So things are changing. I mean, I now I try to get to Alexandria as often as I can because I have a granddaughter and I'm walking, you know, through neighborhoods, it's Black Lives Matter signs. And I'm saying, this is not the Alexandria that I grew up. As I'm listening to you, a couple of things have, have come up. Again, just sort of mirroring my own experience of how that has shaped the way that you see race, mm-hmm. um, partnership or allyship, as they talk about it now, um, and um, the way that progress moves, right? Mm-hmm. I grew up in, in North Minneapolis, which is historically black. Um, it's been a, a challenging neighborhood in many respects, but it's given life to me and to my family over many generations. And so I see it, I think, for the complexities that exist. But I was really aware of um, how it was described by people outside of the neighborhood growing up. And that has shaped me. Like, are, do you have clarity on how those experiences has shaped how you lean into your work, your life work? Sure. And first of all, I have to laugh because, uh, you know, I went away to, to college thinking I knew a lot. And it wasn't until I went to college that I even knew that there were Blacks living in Minnesota and California. I, mean, I, <laughs> I think some people just found out that there were Blacks in Minnesota in 2020. I I mean, so then again, that's the same issue about place. I would say um, a couple of ways. When my mother told me they would not allow colored students or go to that school and said it, you know, was stupid. Um, that very next day, when the school bus drove past the school, the playground, Shana, that was the first time. I really zeroed in that all of the kids on that playground were white and Mm -hmm. all of the kids on the bus were black. So it was my moment of experiencing in a painful way being other. And that that has stayed with me. I I think experiencing um, the sting of of injustice has made me in my own way trying to be a warrior for justice. I know how painful it feels that, I mean, when you really think about it, my mom was right. It's stupid that someone would think that I'm any less because of the color of my skin. The other experience is that really for the first 10 years of my life, what I prayed for every night, what I wished for at every Every birthday would became a joke in terms of, I know what you're wishing for, Judy. And that was to have running water and an indoor bathroom. And so that has stayed with me in 
Yeah, because philanthropy can get into theories of change and all of that. And one of the reasons I loved my almost decade with Cal Wellness is that we're one of the few large foundations where, yeah, we do our advocacy, we do our theory of change, but 50% of our grant making goes to direct services. And again, thinking about place, one of the first site visits that I made when I would say Cal Wellness was going to the Central Valley and standing in a church parking lot, uh, helping give out bottles of water to folks and seeing um, families bring their children to shower in makeshift showers because, again, it wasn't an issue that they they couldn't have access to water. The, it was because they lived in unincorporated areas. These were folks of color, primarily Latino communities. And that's what happened to us in Alexandria. Alexandria certainly had the capacity to provide water and infrastructure. They just stopped right at the boundaries, this individual boundary of the Black community. So in retrospect, I would say that before you can really rally folks, you really have to think about, is there a way to provide them some of the basics? I couldn't think about, I don't know what other, you know, five and six and eight-year-olds thought about in terms of going to college or whatever. All I knew was every day I got up and had to try to think about how to save water, how could I get water, um, that was it. So that that issue about direct service, thinking about basic needs and the bright spot. When I think about it, I didn't know it at the time, but that was my first experience with the power of community organizing, with the power of the impact of really smart, thoughtful, uh, innovative grant making philanthropy. I um, am a board chair for an organization called Public Allies, and I'm on the heels of a trip from uh, in Louisiana where we went to the Whitney Plantation. Oh, okay. And um, sitting in a, a place of thinking around the legacy, it's also Black History Month, um, in, in which we're having this conversation, and it wasn't as difficult as I thought it was going to be. Mm -hmm. to go there because I think, number one, the way in which they frame how they share the story of the place. Uh, number two, understanding that our existence in this country has been one of resistance mm -hmm. uh, and, and survival, right? Like I'm a descendant of survivors right? Uh, and knowing um, the lives that are laid across the South and many other places mm -hmm. um, for lives lost and, you know, due to their activism, right? right? And, not, and, and becoming more clear on what that was and why it's meaningful for me to understand it. I often think about philanthropy in the sense of what do you think that we need to understand about the history of this country? Like how informative is it to the way that we make decisions now? Because you're really threading in the way that I hear it and understanding that if you don't have the basics met, because you know what that means. Right. So you can thread that into what you know other people need. There's no distance between 
who you are and who you were were serving and impacting? Yeah, I think um, the the lived experience. I'm sure you feel like most of at least I would say at least how I feel. I mean, there are days that I just I don't want to get up. I you know I want to just put the covers over my head. I'm really worried about this country. It's interesting. We we're looking. My husband and I were looking at a plaque to put on the house with our street numbers, a new plaque, and and the gentleman who was showing us samples, it, you know, the American flag was on it. And I said, oh, I don't know if I want the American flag engraved on it. And then my husband said, we cannot let folks take this away from us. We are Americans. We you know, I don't believe in the exceptionalism of America that we're, you know, better than any other country, but we are Americans and we cannot um, stand on the sidelines and and gripe without engaging and really fighting. And to me, that fight uh, is an inclusive one. It's really kind of standing up. And, and I... I know I'm going to be talking to a group of volunteers, uh, trying to inspire them on, on Thursday. And I, I said, what can I say? And I, and I think that if you do think about what's happening in the world, the pain in the world, it can be so overwhelming. The only thing you can do is what is it that you and I can do with the skills that we have in the space that we're in. Maybe this conversation will inspire someone uh, to move forward, to have the confidence and, and the strength to keep at it. But, but I really believe us doing what we can where we are is, is a, it's the only starting point that I know. Yeah, I agree um, with that. And I mean, how are you feeling about the state of this country? You know, I think that 2020, 2021, 22 did a number on me, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I think because of the intensity of what was happening here in Minnesota. Yeah. That in leading while you're going through it, right? Mm-hmm. Like we're going through it as a community. It felt very proximate to me. It felt very proximate to my family, my children, my husband, like, I mean, it just, I was feeling it at every level and in the middle mm-hmm. of it, you know, lost my mother. And there are moments where I feel really um, leaned into how do I help move the system? How do I help make these big changes, population level, right? Like these right. big dreams um, of while I'm doing this work to just make it better for for us, for future generations, for, for everyone. Um, Right. And then there's points where I have to pull back to exactly what you said, which is right now I need to understand what I have the ability to influence, mm-hmm. who I can do that with, what the right balance is. So I, I find myself going sort of in and out mm-hmm. of space, right? Being really inspired by big systems change and then getting overwhelmed a little bit and having to pull back. And that's, I think that's been the rhythm and the cadence of my career, this in and mm-hmm. out where obviously they're integrated and they amount to wins along the way. 
But I think that when I stop being able to sort of see the wins, I have to pull back and pull it back into perspective because sometimes the arc of what I'm looking for is so far down the road that I miss all the beauty in front of me. Right, exactly. One of the things that I know about you because I've heard about you before we met was how you have supported uh, women uh, primarily along your leadership journey Mm -hmm. and probably asking them questions very much like what you just asked me. And so there are people that want to understand how they can be more impactful. And one of the ways you've chosen is by being in relationship with other people that are coming down the road. And so why, why has that been a commitment and what have you learned from that? Well, both, you know, good and bad experiences. Okay. We need one, to hear the good um, one, um, the good experiences that, that there are so many folks uh, and many of them are women who've lifted me up, have supported me, given me a shot at opportunities, both, you know, professionally and then personally. I, I talk often about my woman uh, kitchen cabinet, a group of women uh, ranging from childhood friends, college friends, and other folks I've picked up in my collection that have just circled me with unconditional love while they're proud of all my accomplishments. Uh, Many of them knew me when before. These are folks that helped me raise my kids, assured me I wouldn't be the only, uh, I wouldn't have the only child who would go to college, who was not potty trained, you know, will say, no, you cannot wear that. You shouldn't wear that. And um, what's a group that said, you know, you're ready to go for a CEO shot. You need to lean in on that. Um, It's just unconditional love. And these are folks, no matter what happened, will be there for me. The other part is just, um, it's lonely. I mean, it's, there are a lot more women, Black women in leadership positions now. But when I started, I was pretty, was pretty lonely and had to navigate my way often in rooms um, where I was the only one um, and feeling that burden of uh, wanting to speak my truth, but also feeling, okay, I got to also represent the community. Um, And so that's been tough, making um, some mistakes that I don't want others to make about everything from, um, you know, being comfortable with, with money and power, comfortable with making decisions that you need to make that are in the best interests of your family, um, stepping away from positions. All of those were big, difficult decisions that I'm hoping by sharing by coaching, by mentoring other women, hopefully their road would be a lot easier than mine was. You recently retired mm-hmm. and there's been lots of conversations, I think, um, after 2020, for sure, people were feeling a little bit unsettled, rethinking mm-hmm. their lives due to the p- pandemic and lots of other reasons of just assessment. And I know that um, in my circle, there's been more conversations around sort of these inflection points and like transitions. Like, how did you know it was time to transition? Like, how how did you know? 
Yeah, and I do. I feel it's more of a transition than than retiring. Um, there are a couple of reasons. One, good or bad, it's difficult for me to do things half-ass. So, you know, I'm all in. And I realize that it's a big job. I, I enjoyed it. Uh, but, you know, going through the 2016 election, going through COVID pandemic, no one gave me the memo about <laughs> not leading a public health foundation during a public health crisis and then leading while Black during this country's yet another racial reckoning and leading a racial justice foundation. And during all of that, having a life, I mean, you know, during pandemic, you know, my adult children who I adore were back East. Um, I lost um, a cousin, a first cousin in the first wave of fatalities with COVID. First cousin is, is you know, really close mm-hmm. family for us. Just like a sibling, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, losing you know, other friends who should still be with us, you know, through cancer or whatever. So there's a lot. And also believing, believing, Shonda, that um, there needs to probably be more turnover in these leadership positions. So uh, the board, they said they didn't remember it, but I did, uh, you know, drop many hints that I was not going to be a 20-year, you know, tenured CEO. It, it was going to be around the 10 year. And so the timing in terms of what was happening in my life, also realizing that where Cal Wellness was, we're just about on the cusp of really stepping back and finishing you know, our 10 year strategic initiatives and beginning to think about what was next. And knowing me, it's that, you know, if I kind of leaned in and started creating what was next, I would want to see it through. And that to me was another five years. And that just did not make sense for me personally, nor did I think it was good for the foundation. So that was it. And then just, you know, I have a life. There are a lot of other interests that I have. And so what I'm doing is I'm trying to figure out how did I fit work into my life? Because I'm really... (laughs) And I know I, this feeling. Mm-hmm. That's why I said because you were a crazed lady. I mean, and he would be knocking on the bathroom door. I know you in there on your iPad. You might as well come out. I know you're texting or whatever. And um, so I'm busy, but I'm busy doing what I want to do with who I want to do it with. And I'm early on. I mean, check on me in two months. I might be climbing the walls. (laughs) I will. I will check on you. So talk to me about this philosophy of or the statement that you think there should be more turnover at the leadership role. Why do you think that and why is that important? I, I, I believe the same thing, but why? Well, you know, I always I wrote an article my after my first year, um, Cal Wellness major statewide billion dollar foundation, and I just started, you know, noticing the interaction with folks. All of a sudden, you know, people say, "Oh, you're so smart. Looks like you've lost weight," <laughs> and I hadn't any. I think that. Uh, philanthropy, when you really think about it, I mean, my brother, younger brother, 
you know, who's cynical says, oh, they're paying you to give away people's money. I mean, it is sort of a crazy job when you really think about it. And I think, you know, we get paid a ton of money. We make decisions up and down and just, you know, a lot of ass kissing because uh, it's so hard for nonprofits uh, to get in the door, to get the resources they need. And we're we're the gatekeepers to, to all of that. And I think me and along with my staff, we were we're open-minded. We, you know, we have um protocols in place to deal with making sure it's a fair process. But in the end, we're human. And in the end, you know, we say no more than we say yes. They're just biases. I mean, I always, I tell, I was telling um, my staff, I always felt, you know, a test was, you know, would I fund an asshole who was doing really, really good work? Um, <laughs> Where did you land on that question? And you probably don't. You want to be liked, um, just like you hire people, you tend to hire people that you like and share your lived experiences. So, I just think that there's a, you know, philanthropy is a is a is a business. And there's a lot in the ecosystem. People go from foundation to foundation. And if you're one of the lucky folks who, you know, you get a grant, you're gonna probably continue to get a grant. I was a program officer and I advocated like crazy for my grants. He's like, you know, someone had to tell me, Judy, you just can't fund them anymore. Because I could always tell you a reason why they needed the funding. And that was great, Shonda, for folks who were in the pipeline. But there were many others who were not. And I think, I think just it's a it's a really small group with responsibility for billions of dollars. And I think circulating it is great. I I I'm you know I'm probably leaning more to even the policy that Hewlett and Ford has with um, term limits for program officers. So term limits, obviously, I think best practice for boards. And I think why not have term limits also for CEOs? Yeah. And what I'm reading into it, too, is that we all come with sort of our own filters, our own relationships, our own biases. After you've been there, you know, a decade or leaning up to it or beyond, like it begins to take on those, those perspectives. And so being able to disrupt that to ensure that you are being, that you're moving forward, right? Fresh eyes, new lenses, new biases or whatever, but you know, to keep the pipeline going. Yeah. I could see that. Yeah. And there's a ton of groups, you know, obviously still, you know, we need more African-Americans and Latinos, but there's still groups that have almost been totally frozen out of the funders table um, groups, Native Americans, you know, very few serving uh, on the funder side, trans, the disabled, all they're groups that um, that are just not at all represented. And I think that influences. I also believe where your where you live experience, where you're where you're based. I I learned that during my leading the Levi Strauss Foundation 
the company really invested in having grant makers all over the world. And it's going back to that discussion about place. And it just, um, we just did better grant making when we had folks based mm-hmm. in Asia that um, understood that as well as having teams in, you know, in Europe and uh, in Canada in terms of making decisions about what was best. Yeah. Uh, those communities. Yeah, you've had such a, a fascinating uh, career in philanthropy and that we've talked about where you transitioned from recently into your new life and, and grandbaby and all of that stuff. But you were at Levi Strauss. And if I remember correctly, you were also at Target. Yeah, I was. I mean, I'm really unusual in that um, I came through the corporate philanthropy. And I chose, I always said I chose well, both in love and in business, two values-driven companies. Target, which its roots go back, as you know, from Minnesota uh, to the Dayton family, Dayton Hudson. And the Daytons um, really believed in tithing as part of their religious commitment. And they brought that practice to the marketplace. So Target uh, I think it's still the only company on the New York Stock Exchange that returns 5% of its pre-tax profits. And then, uh, so I would say that was my first um, experience in philanthropy, and it was a great one to really learn, um, values-driven, and um, then went on for 10 years to run the Levi Strauss uh, Foundation and to head up their global corporate social responsibility. And again, the values of the Haas family, although it's publicly traded now, when I was there, it was private. But again, the values came from, you know, Levi Strauss himself, who uh, immigrated to this country uh, because of anti-Semitism. But the family, Bob Haas, uh, Peter and Walter Haas, really brought um, the values of believing that you can do well and make money <laughs> at the same time. And then I, you know, I took a break to focus on the family, then was intrigued by a new model of giving um, by the Rockefeller family, the women of the Rockefeller family, who came up with the concept of Rockefeller Philanthropy Advisors, which is a global nonprofit focusing on helping individual donors, families, and corporate and private foundations, but in a bread and butter was working with individual high net worth donors to help them be really thoughtful and strategic in their giving. And we worked with donors around the world. And I was there, you know, at the you know, almost at the very beginning. And Rockefeller Philanthropy Advisors now is, you know, one of the largest philanthropic advising firms. You are a writer. I think you have a series coming out called Loading Lessons. Leading lesson. I'm a writer. I've always been a writer. This too is where, you know, place has been really important. I've written a lot about how my early years influenced my uh, life now. But a turning point for me was also um, getting a, being selected to get a writer's residency at Hedgebrook which is a women's writing retreat off of Whidbey Island. Also another great philanthropic story, Nancy Nordoff, high net worth donor, 
uh, had always been committed to supporting women, women artists, women writers, and she's an environmentalist. So she purchased this amazing piece of property on Whidbey Island and, um, and created uh, Hedgebrook, um, which includes six writing cottages, uh, the farm. If you're selected uh, as a residency, we provide what we call the Hedgebrook Radical Hospitality. We feed you, we take care of you because what we heard from women was what they need to do writing is place and time. Mm-hmm. And so the majority of women that are selected are women of color from around the world. Writers that we've all heard of, like, you know, Natalie Bazell and uh, Gloria Steinem and others have um, participated there. So it's a really important part. And I am really passionate about encouraging other women to write their stories. You know, the LA Times has been a great, provided a great platform for me to share my stories. Also, you know, had, um, I'm doing a little bit of short stories, a little bit of poetry, but uh, it's a really important part of my life. Two years ago, I went back and spoke to the School of Communications and said, I know you're thinking now, communications and philanthropy, but I said, I use my storytelling skills, the skills that I learned at Northwestern every day, trying to help people understand issues that were important to Cal Wellness, whether uh, it's gun violence or whether, you know, the fact that there are folks in the state that don't have access for water by telling partly about my story and telling other stories and lifting it up. I mean, Shana, you are also a storyteller. I mean, that's what that's what we're doing now is telling stories with the idea that it might inspire and motivate. I think that's right. I think that as I have matured into my roles in life and, and who I am, I think What I've understood about myself is that I spent many years showing up like I hopefully in a consistent way, but in a very um, compartmentalized way. Mm -hmm. Like I do work, I have friends, I do, you know, like everything was in. And um, on this search of being more, feeling more liberated, right? right? is understanding all of those parts that are integrating, right? So it's it's the place and space in which I come from, those stories, those lessons to um, my experiences um, in, in work and in career to who I am in this place. And I think to be able to talk about myself in dimensions um, in, in a society that wants you to be one thing, right? Yeah. Right, who can see your identity by where you are. Right. So part of my own thing around leaders leaving is that, you know, I, I never want my identity too attached with the place. Right. Like I want my identity attached to who I am and what I bring. Right. Right. And um, I think that there for me, there was a danger of me for, for me getting too comfortable in, in one identity. Right. Yeah. I get that. No. Yeah. And I think the the permission of what I'm hearing, too, is. Um, to recognize both where you've come from and where you're evolving to. Mm-hmm. And I think owning the evolution, we all talk about the evolution, but it's very hard to craft stories, even, you know, and understandings for yourself, much less other people 
around why the evolution? What did you learn in that? And how do we share those things with other people that are are wrestling with many of the same things that we have and they're wrestling with things that I'm wrestling with? Yeah. Yeah. And I think what you're talking about, which is it's been, you know, two things I've been working on. One is wanting to be authentic, that I'm not I'm not one way, you know, with my friends and another way at work. And and I think how wellness provided me that. It's the first organization that I've worked in. I had the pleasure of leading, Chandra, that has majority women of color on the board, majority um, women of color and folks of color on the staff. And I just didn't realize how tense, how much I've been holding up. And I've worked, you know, in some amazing values-driven organizations, but um, I didn't have to explain. I didn't have to um, just say, let me see how I might phrase this. Mm-hmm. And yeah, workshop, workshop your contribution. Okay, well, no. <laughs> And so, um, so I, my hope is that, that everyone could find their authentic self. And that's why I think I did some of my best work at Cal Wellness, um, because of the comfort level, the fact that I was my authentic um, self, that experience has reinforced for me that I never want to put myself again in a place where I'm the only, <laughs> I'm the only one. Um, so that's it. And then the other issue that I've been just, you know, working on is courage. Um, and I think courage plays out differently for different people. You know, for some people, it's like jumping out a plane or whatever. For me, it's really thinking about um what is so important that, you know, I'm willing to give up something to make it happen. Mm-hmm. And then the likability. Uh, mm-hmm. I like to be liked. And sometimes doing the right thing, doing the courageous thing, you sometimes have to piss a few people off yeah. and um, and disappoint folks. And that's mm-hmm. one of the things I do tell people as I lead. If you're rarely at least a decision that would land on our desk, Chandra, that in making that decision, you wouldn't be disappointing someone. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting place, philanthropy, because you you shared already that there's more no's than yeses, mm-hmm. that it is about making financial investments, but there's so many other ways in which we invest our time and our thinking and our expertise into large issues, into convenings, um, you've talked about supporting not just the 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 people that have reported to you and worked around you, but also others that have reached out to you in moments of of need, of mentorship, of coaching. And so there's many competing demands. Mm-hmm. Right. So what what did you learn? Because many of us are still in this work. We haven't transitioned in the way you have. And, um, and even with that, you still have competing uh, sort of demands right. of your time and, and, and your interest, right? But what have you learned about managing for the long haul that might be useful to people listening? A couple of things. It's really kind of knowing yourself. And I've worked a lot 
on knowing um, myself and what are priorities. And so, you know, to me, it starts with how I spend my day. I start each day with, okay, who do I have to thank? (laughs) Who do I have to show gratitude to? And if, if you can't think of anybody to thank, you probably need to go back to bed. But um, but starting off with gratitude, understanding what what you do well. Um, so what is it that I do well, whether it's writing, whether it's coaching, being a strategic partner? The other piece is is learning. I mean, if I'm not learning something new, I'm not, I'm not happy. I'm not uh, as um, creative. And then, you know, this is a lesson that I learned very early in life. I just decided that I didn't quite know what I was going to do in my life. I certainly didn't know about philanthropy, but I knew that I wanted to use whatever skills and talents I had to serve the greater common good that, you know, making widgets, you know, wasn't going to do it, which is why it's really interesting that, you know, I started my career in, in the corporate sector. Um, Mm -hmm. But I've found it inspiring to be able to tap into a marketing talent of, of Levi's to have a platform um, that I could go anywhere in the world and know with confidence that I was speaking on behalf of this company about what was right, what was wrong, what we would do. And so having that platform. And then there are other things that was really important is that I wanted to be sufficient, financially sufficient. So that is, that's a lesson I probably learned um, a little too, too late. In life, I mean, there were some folks, oh, you know, I'll take the job, whatever, it sounds great. Um, but being able to, because that also gives me resources and, and gives us all power that you have the resources that if you're in a situation that's not meeting your needs or putting you in a compromised situation, you can walk. That's right. I think that part of what I'm hearing, too, in in terms of leading and leading authentically and leading in a place that can be sustained, like a big piece of it is just knowing who you are and what you need. Yeah, right. Right. At, At the core of it. Right. Like being clear, like I need to read, like I need to be creative. Um. I need freedom to be creative, like just really understanding the set of conditions in which you can live and work in your in your freest state. Right. Which I think is really important. And what I, yeah, I tell young folks is that they should be very thoughtful about where they take their talents. And I try to tell folks when they came into Cal Wellness, you, you didn't come in as an empty vessel. You had your values. You should have your values. Who are you? What do you care about? What is it that you won't do? Like, you know, no one can can pay me in enough money to lie for them. What is it that you stand for? And then will this environment help enhance what you stand for and what you want to do? 
Yeah, I think that's right. Have you thought along your career around your own legacy? Was that something that you were thinking about is how do I create a legacy in this work or do you now see your legacy? Mm, that's a good question because I I think the best work is done in partnership and support, you know, with others. And I feel I've chosen well, uh, and I've now, you know, I've worked um, in the corporate sector. I've worked in government. Uh, I worked, you know, for a social enterprise. I've worked for a private foundation. When I came in in all of those positions with a little mental list and really wanting to believe that I had made the organization, or at least part of the organization that I was responsible for, better than when I had arrived and done it um, in a way that was comfortable for me. So what's comfortable for me is doing it with other people, because I don't think you can do squat. I mean, you know, I always tell any good leader, look behind you and see if anybody's following you. I, I chose well. I just have a really good sense of of good people and environment and myself of where I can flourish, you know, early in my career, you know, yeah, I made a couple of uh, bad choices, but I learned from those um, Mm -hmm. choices. And I also learned um, from working under not so great leaders saying, I'm going to make a mental note of that. Won't do that. Will I? (laughs) Yeah. There's value in all the experiences. You know, voice, vision, value, uh, these conversations around centering um, our stories, right? We've talked about storytelling. uh, We've talked about the importance of knowing ourselves. And then that mentoring and coaching piece, which do you think that we're sharing our leadership stories enough? Like what what the real experience is? Like sometimes people see the glossy, Mm -hmm. right? You can say it wasn't all rosy, but, you know, do you think that we should be sharing sort of the thorns that we experience in this work more openly? And do you think there would be a benefit to that? Well, um, I think like you, uh, I'm sure you read with interest Shanique's book um, on. uh, White women cry and call me angry. Yeah, that was a great piece of writing. It was raw. And it put all the warts out. Um, and I thought Unique was very vulnerable. So I, I read it with a tremendous amount of interest. And I thought it was also courageous. Yeah, the way I coach is um, really, you know, first sharing what I could have um, done better when I'm leading. I also try to admit when we've made mistakes. Um, You're an executive, accomplished executive coach. And I'm a big fan of executive coaching. And, you know, I had a a transition coach during my last year at Cal Wellness, which um, I would recommend um, for anyone um, because there was a lot happening. And even though I said, yeah, I, you know, I know I'm ready. You know, once they announced my successor, I mean, it was like, okay, this is for real. Uh, And so preparing. uh, So I believe that you need to have a variety of different um, support systems. As I mentioned, I have a group of, you know, personal women friends. Um, I've benefited from professional coaching. 
I try to um, put myself um, in situations with folks that um, I can trust. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also try, you know, to be a role model and really sharing with folks, you no, know, yes, it's, uh, you know, I, I think I have a great life, but I've had some real um, deep tragedies. I've gone through a little bit of trauma like everyone else had and just really being authentic and being able to share that. But you're right. I mean, in that society, it's like, you know, how you doing? Um, do people really want to know how are you doing? So also pausing and being really intentional about checking in not only on yourself, but also people that uh, you care about. I'm I'm just curious, how do you uh, approach your your practice of coaching? Um, First of all, in selecting who you, where you feel you can add value and um, what's your sweet spot in terms of your mentoring and coaching? Yeah, that's really, I know, I know you're a good listener because <laughs> that. I, I try to be a good listener and um, I think the practice is evolving a bit because I've always had uh, folks that I've coached along the route of, of my leadership. And those have mostly been, um, folks that have moved into uh, new new roles. So it's either they're expanding in a role, they're a new CEO, they're moving into a new executive leadership role within the social sector, or they're in a corporate environment in which they now have responsibilities that are external and need help navigating those spaces. And I think the third one is around issues of sort of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the dynamics around those. So whether or not it's someone white leading a diverse team or someone who's an only on an all white team or whatever those issues are, helping them sort of navigate in those spaces. I think how I determine fit is, um, you know, a good first meeting um, to just determine the synergy, because synergy really matters to how you enter into a coaching relationship. So that that matters quite a bit to me. And then listening to the issues um, that they're hoping to focus on um, and, and making a, a really clear determination on do I think I'm the best person to help them navigate those issues? And if I'm not, I will say this is, the, you know, this is the extent in which I think I can help you. But this other person has more experience in this place. So for me, I really absolutely love investing in the leadership um, of others. And I think that does require good listening and you've got to be able to do it from where they're at and not from where you're at, but share the experiences, right? The things that you've learned. And how do you, how would, how do you determine if it's been a success or coaching? Oh, I can usually tell. Okay, (laughs) I can tell. I mean, I tell from the check ins, um, the reflection points, um, whether or not I'm getting referrals from it. When you're talking to someone, you can sort of see the the light bulb. You can see the the worldview or the perspective shift. Mm -hmm. Right. Those those are wins to me to say, okay, I do see it this way. Because right. often we get stuck and we get stuck in a narrative or we get stuck in a place or we get stuck in a, in a definition of ourselves. And so when I start to see those things expand, oh. I know that it's been um, successful time spent. Okay. 
you know, we come back to sort of the lessons that we were taught in so many reflective ways and in the storytelling element of it. Right. Um, and because I'm a reader, <laughs> right. Um, that my world expands through the reading of other people's reflections, their stories, that it just continues to like weave the fabric of like the humanity and our closeness um, and how similar we are in terms of what we have to overcome. And so I, I have a deep appreciation for that. Thank you for listening to this episode of Centering Conversations, an exclusive brought to you by Conversations with Shonda. This conversation series is powered by Voice Vision Value, Black women leading in philanthropy. We again invite you to like, listen, and rate Conversations with Shonda. This keeps us moving forward and lets us know you appreciate and want to continue to hear more episodes. Thank you for listening. And again, this is Shonda Smith-Baker from Conversations with Shonda.